You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Gil um, contacted me about a possible topic, and that's always the hard part. You know, what's a possible topic that the Advent hasn't covered? (laughs) I mean, we're about as exhaustive as we get, and we have such good teachers and resources here. Uh, And so in my own sort of wrestling, I I started thinking, the last series I did was on Islam. Uh, pretty easy topic to knock out of the park. Um, I thought I would take on liberalism, so I, I'm either, well, there's a lot of hubris, I guess, on my part, but, but I think I can qualify this enough uh, to, to make sense of it. What equating this to No, not at all, not at all. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> Hardly. The title is Recovering Freedom, Christianity, and the Dilemma of Liberalism. And what does the, today's lecture is what does it mean? The second lecture uh, will follow up with why does it matter and who do I trust? Um, I want to start with a, in a typical uh, professor sort of way. I want to qualify everything. Uh, but I think this is a necessary qualification, uh, not just a... Um, uh, for the sake of killing time qualification. Um, I, I want to focus just on a qualification on the word liberalism uh, for a moment and say what I'm not talking about, what I'm not saying. Uh, I'm not, you know, that's a charged word, as is conservatism, as is most of the ism words are, because they're tied to ideology somehow, frequently. Uh, they're tied to a system of ideas uh, and in that sense, yes, we, we are dealing with liberalism, but I'm not talking about liberalism in a contemporary uh, political sense. Uh, maybe, maybe there's a connection, maybe there are points of contact with what I'm going to say here, but I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about uh, liberalism as, um, as, a, as a conviction of politics per se, i.e. I vote a certain way. That, that, that's not what this is about. So uh, to put any reserves or reservations aside, please, if that's what you thought this was, it's not in MSNBC versus Fox and which one you like more, what time of the day or whatever. Um, this, is, uh, this, this is not meant to be understood that way. And, and in another qualification I would put on it is in a sense I'm addre- I am and I'm addressing an audience that historically could be called liberal in the scope of history. We, we, if you were to take probably uh, this group and throw us in Tsarist Russia or maybe the eight years leading up to the French Revolution or Pol Pot, the years of Pol Pot in Southeast Asia, all of us would pretty quickly realize we're, we're liberal compared to if we're, if we're reading our own assumptions back into the past. There are just certain things we don't agree with uh, in terms of the historical unfolding of, of, of politics. Um, and so those are two qualifications I put. I'm, I'm really speaking of liberalism as a way of being and thinking, a, a way of interpreting reality. 
again, there could be points of contact there. But I'm talking about a cultural force. And if there is a question of authority here, really the focus, we're in church, it's on theological authority. It's, it's how do we reason theologically? And what does liberalism mean for that? So it's, it's a loaded word, and it's a word like a, like a wax nose. You can put it a lot of different places, but I mean it in a very specific context. And, and I think two quotes might help us here. Uh, the first is from um, the early 20th century, 1923 to be precise. There was a uh, quite the controversy at uh, in the Presbyterian fold uh, up in the north, and uh, and indeed it was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy, and it was in the northeast. It really wasn't in the south. Um, uh, it came later to us, or maybe just by nature we we fight those battles, but. Um, the, the quote is from J. Gresham Machen. Machen uh, was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, and Princeton became embroiled with this, this problem. Some call it fundamentalism, some call it modernism versus fundamentalism. Some called it liberalism versus conservatism, but it was a theological contest, and it had to do with how the Bible was going to be understood authoritatively. And I think this is helpful because that's how I'm kind of developing these two lectures, is what's our authority and how are we taking measure of and absorbing uh, the nature of authority today. Uh, so Machen's quote, it, it's, it's long, but stay with me and, and, and hear it, and I think it helps frame this. The, this is from a, uh, he did a series of lectures. He was the chief contestant uh, leading this charge at Princeton that liberalism and Christianity are are not the same thing, theologically, not politically, theologically. The chief modern rival of Christianity is liberalism. An examination of the teachings of liberalism in comparison with those of Christianity will show that at every point the two movements are in direct opposition. The many varieties of modern liberal religion are rooted in naturalism, that is, in the denial of any entrance of the creative power of God in connection with the origin of Christianity. Here is found the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism appeals to man's will, while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. It is no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon shifting emotions of sinful men. Strong words, and it was a strong contest. Uh, and it, it affected all denominations. The Presbyterians just happened to be at the tip of the spear uh, in the early 20th century. Um, and Machen goes on to say the, the key part of his thesis there is that these are two different ways of thinking about the, theology, authority, and human nature, and human meaning. And, and even more, he, he's very generous early on in his work. He says that liberalism is not bad. It's not a bad word. It doesn't mean that it's bad people. It's just simply not what Christianity has historically taught. That's the distinction he's making. It's not between good and bad. It's between more right and more wrong. 
in terms of theological meaning and authority. Does that make sense so far? Uh, the, the the contrast quote uh, comes from the late 20th century from an Anglican. Yes. So are you saying that liberalism in that regard is like secularism? Um, I, I would. Uh, I, I think there's overlap. If we were to draw a Venn graph, I think you could draw uh, a shaded middle that there'd be overlap, but I don't think they're identical. I don't think they're identical. Um, may, the the guy I just quoted himself was a member of the ACLU. <laughs> Right. I mean, he, he, he was very much for civil liberty and human freedom and that type of thing. I, I think the argument is theological. That I don't think it's it, um, and I think secularism has a different implication uh, than what Machen was getting at slightly. But I do think there's overlap. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, David uh, Jenkins, the Bishop of Durham, is my second quote. Some of you may remember him, very controversial figure in the Church of England. In the late uh, 20th century, uh, he passed away not so long ago. He was Bishop of Durham from 1984 to 1994. And this quote uh, comes from, I I have two quotes here. One comes from a speech he made at the General Synod of 1986. And the other comes from his obituary. Um, A kind of description of him. Uh, and his thinking, and, and, I, and I hold him up as a contrast. I think he, 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 he brings and he illuminates Machen's point some 70 years earlier uh, on, this, on what we mean by Christianity and liberalism. Here's a quote from the General Synod in 1986 from Bishop uh, Jenkins. We are faced with the claim that God is prepared to work fear, physical miracles in order to let a select number of people into the secret of his incarnation, resurrection, and salvation. But he, God, is not prepared to use such methods in order to deliver from Auschwitz, prevent Hiroshima, overcome famine, or bring about a bloodless transformation of apartheid. The, the but, the however, is the key. Uh, linguistically there in terms of the sentence structure and the statement. God, we, we want to claim that God works miracles here, but there are no miracles answering these other questions. Um, and um, that, that's a, that is a kind of portrait of liberalism as a way of thinking, um, questioning the validity of the miraculous as a starting point for authority. Another quote, I wouldn't put it past God to arrange a virgin birth if he wanted, but I very much doubt he would. The resurrection, this is uh, a quote that was in his obituary. The resurrection was not a single event, but a series of experiences that gradually convinced people that Jesus's life, power, purpose and personality were actually continuing. The resurrection was not a single event but a series of experiences that convince people of the message of Jesus. Uh, the, whoever the author of his obituary was, I, I didn't check, but uh, um, ended, ended the obituary with this. It is doubtful whether the majority of lay people fully understood what David Jenkins' beliefs actually were but very few could doubt the sincerity and passion with which he delivered them. 
He was a cleric who believed the church had to break free of dogma if it was to retain a place in the modern world. That's liberalism, as I'm trying to talk about it in this series. Um, and, and Bishop Jenkins is an example of a theological liberal in this sense. It really has nothing to do, well, I, I, as I say, it may have something to do with politics and at points of contact, but at the center of it is a question of authority between these two figures like uh, Machen, Gresham Machen and David Jenkins. Is Christianity a religion of history, of facts, of miracle, of God's entrance into space and time, really, or is it something else? Uh, uh, is it, can it be explained culturally, historically, scientifically as a superior ethical system or a way of being a better person? That's the tension. And that's the world we still live in. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's interesting his quote on the virgin birth. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He did. Good, good, good catch. He did. So I don't have a place for my coffee. So. <laughs> yeah. So um, it it is, and it's also uh, the the virgin birth and the other sort of uh, miraculous stories of the the Bible. Um, are, are particularly what's under strain here. So, any other thoughts or questions? I'm happy to pause before we. Clarifications? What, what would be the Bishop quote? What, what do you think in your reading? I don't know who that is. But Jenkins, the, yeah. Jenkins, yeah. So, what is his, what do you think is his. Uh, uh, you alluded to say that he. he this was his way of explaining or thinking that how Christianity was going to survive in, in the modern world. Yeah. Was that? Do you think in your reading, do you think that was truly his, is that his goal was to protect and and, and forward Christianity? Yeah. Or was it true? Or yeah. does he have other motives? Yeah, and you know, what, what, yeah. Yeah, and, and some of you are attorneys in here. You know, motive is hard, <laughs> right? It's hard to identify motive, especially from isolated quotes. So, um, I don't know. Um, I do. I do think, and I, we're about to do some history here. I, I do think that there is a sincerity to theological liberalism. Um, I, I do, um, and my friends that that are a, a part of it, um, in. Um, uh, historically, I think there was a genuine desire to uh, to try to answer the critics that had emerged. I don't know about Jenkins. <laughs> I don't know. That was my not much. I knew who he was as a controversial. I don't doubt sincerity. Yeah, I mean that that's the problem. Is you know, but you can be sincere and be wrong. Yes, Schleimacher considered yep. to be one of the founders of theological liberalism. Yep. One of the books he wrote was Religion to its Cultural Despisers. Despisers. Yeah, so we're about to talk about it. Yeah. Defending something of the essence of Christianity. Yeah, Dr. Sansom is exactly right, and that he's one of the people we're going to breeze through here is that I think there was a genuine effort, especially early on, uh, to, to try to defend something, an apologetic, if you will. Uh, in, in the light of, well, let's look at it, in the light of what, <laughs> right? In the light of what? Good, thank you. Excellent points. 
What's at stake, I would argue, is uh, the nature of, and I've said it, it's the nature of theological authority. That, that's really what we're wrestling with. And it is what do we mean when we say we find something theologically authoritative? And in this sense, <clears throat> we have to get in our time machine and, and travel back to the early modern period when most philosophers, historians, um, cultural interpreters see the shift, what we believe is a shift. There's not a date or a time, 7 a.m., 15, uh, you know, 23, we think we got it. This is when it happened. It's an approximation. It's, it, it, you know what we do in, in the universe? We look for patterns, and that's how we identify time periods or epics. You know, uh, wars are easy. It started here and it ended here. Ideas are more difficult. Uh, how do you say that liberalism as an authoritative structure began at this time and day? And <clears throat> the, uh, the uh, he told me he was going to leave. So, uh, <laughs> he's going to report me. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> he's a good colleague. The, uh, in the sense that I'm talking about, about the nature of theological authority, both Roman Catholics and Protestants share a foundation of theological authority that's different from theological liberalism, in it, at least historically. Okay, It's all jumbled now in the time we live in, but historically, both appeal to a standard of authority. Uh, both had references to scripture and tradition, uh, the, I, the teaching of the church. Yes, Protestants had it as well, that by and large have been abrogated in the modern world. Okay? Or jumbled, maybe the better awkward verb, uh, a cheap verb. It's jumbled. Um, uh, you know, I, or I love it. It's complicated. Mm-hmm, it is, you know. I, I, uh, right, but but at least in its in the early modern world where we start to see these seams begin between liberalism and orthodoxy, as we just saw Machen and Jenkins' language, um, there is in both the Catholic approach to truth and the Protestant approach a supernatural explanation for what we believe. It's outside of nature. It is an authority of scripture and the voice of the church, tradition, that, that makes, and, and that's a loaded word as well, and here I just simply mean the historic teaching of the church as uh, supernatural. God's word coming from without, transcendence, touching eminence. Uh, that's what I'm saying. That is present in both Catholics and Protestants. So what happened? Well, a series of shifts took place over a couple of hundred years that led to the kind of emerging defense we just talked about. How do we now talk about Christianity in a new way that makes sense to the modern world? We've all heard that. How, does, how do we make it make sense to modern people? The first shift was in science. You'll remember this from school. Uh, it was a long shift, but basically what happened was the older way of interpreting nature collapsed under the new way of empirical data and mathematical precision. The old way, 
which was largely based upon Aristotle and Christian versions of Aristotle. There won't be a test, I promise, but this is way back. This is what we inherited. And here's a way to think about it to make it easy because I don't want to get bogged down in names. For many, many, many centuries, and in, in, early, in, in the early Protestants as well, but um, facts, facts about how things worked and the value we attach to those facts had a relationship. Facts and value. Facts and purpose may be another way to say it. Our value judgments and what we saw and experienced weren't ripped apart. They were seen as part of a comprehensive whole. I'll try again with that. But, but basically, it wasn't enough to simply observe nature and natural phenomena. You could actually attack what we call purpose to it. Or you could believe there was purpose. So what a thing did is what it was. And what it was was what it was meant to be. <laughs> and for many, 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 many centuries, this was an accepted way of looking at the world around us. That is the first move that the new science uh, makes. It rips that association apart. After certain thinkers, and it was a series of things, it wasn't again one time, one moment, a series of thinkers, we, we begin with heliocentrism versus geocentrism. Does the earth revolve around the sun, turn around the sun, or does the, you know, a classic sort of thing you start picking up with in grade school, right? Uh, well, the, old, the ancients were wrong. <laughs> they were simply wrong. Well, then that leads to other questions, right? Why do things fall back to the earth uh, as dramatically as they do if we throw something up? Uh, well, the ancients said it's obvious because the earth is the center and everything's gravitating toward a center. And everybody's, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Cheers. Let's go about and, you know, uh, put on our togas and celebrate. I, I don't know, but it, 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 was, a, it was a kind of... Uh, uh, things made sense based upon what they did, and what they did made sense based upon what they were. Being and knowing weren't separated. This is a shift that begins to take place starting in the mid-1500s, and we work through uh, Galileo, Kepler, um, uh, Descartes, and then, of course, the big, the big one, Isaac Newton, who finally takes all these... This, it's a great mystery. What's, what's holding all these things together? And with this... With this answer, with this conclusion, uh, the whole ancient way of thinking is blown apart. They were just wrong. <laughs> they were wrong. We can describe and predict reality based upon empirical experiments and mathematics. End of story. You can't tell, I can't tell you why something does what it does. It does it. <laughs> you say, well, what causes that? Well, an angel pushes it. Well, okay. <laughs> You can't prove that, you see. This is the kind of crazy debates that break out in the early modern period, right? And you can see immediately, you don't have to be a, a historian to see immediately the implications of this for faith. The way I'm describing reality doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what I believe anymore about God. They're separated. Facts and values are torn apart in the 16th and 17th century. And that, I would argue, is one of the first shifts that we have to take into account toward theological liberalism. Okay? 
All right. The second shift is a shift in philosophy, and it's directly related to science. Right? Philosophy is always catching up. You know, usually the poets and the scientists are ahead, and the theorists come in and explain it for all of us. Well, this is really what's going on, right? But with with one figure, and again, I don't want to make a litany of names because that's just terribly boring on a Sunday morning. I mean, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I feel like we've checked the boxes. And you know, we, how many more names can you squeeze in? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, but anyway, but the, the name I do want you to remember is uh, Descartes, Rene Descartes. Uh, he's an important figure in, in my own thinking because so much of so often, Martin Luther uh, gets the aspersion that he created modern thinking, the modern world. He created interiority. Um, I don't, I'm not convinced. I think if I were to f- identify um, a figure or a thinker, it would be this guy, Descartes, who around the year in the 1620s and 30s, he, he gave an answer for this split between facts and values. He said the bottom line is all authority can be doubted. The only authority that cannot be doubted is that we think in here to interpret everything else. Luther wouldn't have gone along with that. Calvin certainly wouldn't have gone along with that. This is a radical shift that is important because what what happens from the mid-1600s forward is a cultural shift in the universities and such begins to take place where people say what we we can always apply skepticism first and reason first along with skepticism that the way our minds work the thinking self, you, the individual, you are the arbiter of meaning, not tradition. Authority begins with the processes of human consciousness and the human mind, not something outside of us. Does that make sense? So it's that, the shift in science and then the shift in philosophy. And again, you don't have to go too big a stretch of imagination to see that that Cartesian turn is still with us. We, it, you don't go back. I mean, this is a, a new way of thinking about the nature of reality. It's internal, it's interior. And the implications for theology are manifold. And liberalism as, as I'm trying to define it. So the method of doubt, methodological doubt, prove it. Show me. Right? I don't have, you know, well, the Bible says, I don't care what the Bible says. Show me. I I can test it against my own consciousness and my own rational process. Um, Nothing new under the sun. This was present in the ancient world, but it was a very minority position. And most people would have thought you were insane. (laughs) Modernity takes it as its launching point. The third shift, and it's the bigger one that is implied from the shift in science and then the shift in philosophy, is the the enlightenment rise of rationalism and empiricism. Let's don't get bogged down in isms. The the bottom line is something such as this. Uh, The genie's out of the bottle now. We have a new way of interpreting nature and we have a new way of interpreting human nature. 
And so the great struggle begins around the mid-1600s, and it lasts well into the 19... Well, it lasts to the present hour uh, with some responses. But the struggle is this. Reality can only be determined by how we think, and how we know can only be determined by what we experience and, te- and how we test that against reason. Reality can only be determined by how we think, and, that can, and it can only be determined by how we, we test our experience against reason. So to declare there's an authority outside of that becomes highly problematic for certain people groups. And I say certain people groups because I'm always quick to emphasize, especially with students, the church has not disappeared. Orthodoxy has not disappeared. It's trugging along just fine. But within certain circles, namely <coughs> the universities, where all heresy begins. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Kidding, in case my boss is listening. It's true, though. Uh, uh, but uh, it is. Uh, it, 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 that's where the struggle begins. And, and, and where are you trained as a theologian? You're trained through, the, through, through these, you know, theology is often right at the cutting edge of human thought, right? It, it's right there. And so it doesn't, it, it, there, there's no membrane protecting this. It just, these ideas, they go back and forth. And rationalism and empiricism begin to be the great struggle of uh, the, the 17th century and the, the 18th century. Right. And, and some some uh, immediately try to show, hey, Christianity is perfectly compatible with rationalism and empiricism. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened. Thomas Aquinas and all through history, the church has struggled with faith and reason. But now you have a body of doctrine saying, if you really want to understand God, look at nature. If you really want to understand God, look at science. You see? Um, you don't have to look out there or in the Bible necessarily. You can look within and look around you, and you begin to see how God works. There's a naturalness to the uh, to the godness of the universe. Well, that's not going to last long, especially with Scotsmen, uh, and they it gets cold and they they smoke their pipes and they think, hmm, I don't know if I agree with this. So up in Scotland, <laughs> up in Scotland. A very powerful skepticism emerges and saying, I don't know if I can buy this. And, and so the, the war begins. Can, God, can, can this new rationalism and empiricism work for us to know God? Or have we crossed the Rubicon, so to speak? So people like David Hume uh, in Scotland said, we've crossed the Rubicon. There's no way to ever answer these questions the same again. And thus, the church feels the need to respond that's what Dr. Sansom was mentioning there. So what comes along is a kind of reaction to this. It comes along as a kind of reaction to this hyper-scientific, rational understanding of God. We, we call it the romantic movement, right? Where is God? If God can't be known authoritatively, he can be felt. We can feel God in our emotions, we can feel God. If, if we, we live in this milieu. This is the milieu that's born around the end of the 18th century and into the 19th century. There's a conservative version of it. It's called evangelicalism and revivalism. And then there's a liberal version of it. 
Bishop Jenkins. How do I know it's true? I just feel it's true. The gentleman mentioned uh, Schleimacher. His name actually means, translates, the maker of veils. Uh, he worked very hard to say, look, all you culture despisers who think you've broken the code on tradition and authority, let me explain to you how religion can have truth subjectively. Okay? And he's building off other thinkers like Immanuel Kant. And I don't want to go into all these guys, but, you know, subjective meaning. It's not out there, it's in here. Okay? These three shifts, science, um, uh, philosophy, and then uh, the, the sort of cultural inundation of it in the Enlightenment, change the way Christians talk about Christianity. We're not the first. It's been going on a long time. But as we get to the close here, there's serious implications for theology. And if you'll let me just hammer through this, I'll stop for a couple questions at the end, or maybe we can have some conversation about it. What did this mean for theology? We're trying to answer the question, recovering freedom, uh, and, and we want to get to that. What is, but what does this mean? What is this dilemma of liberalism for the church? First, first, Scripture, that ancient authority, that, that, that word of God, as, as has been understood uh, from the very early centuries in, of the church, as understood in its self-understanding of the Bible itself, Scripture could now be analyzed according to the tools of science. Okay? It's not an article of faith or an object um, of, um, of meaning as the voice of God, the vox Dei. Instead, it is, a, it is an article of historic, it's an artifact, not an article, an artifact that has a historical context, a language, a linguistic context, a context of language, a cultural conditioning. It is, it is, is it the word of God? Well, only in the sense that it conveys what, how ancient Near Eastern peoples understood the word of God. You see the qualification? Ancient Near Eastern people. Uh, scripture is now, it's no longer held to an authoritative standard, it can be examined and prodded and pulled apart on historical, cultural, and linguistic standards, which means what it held authoritatively is being subject to science. That's the first shift. Second, both scripture and Christianity are now examined, after these turns that I just, these shifts I talked about, they're now examined according to their universal relationship to other religious claims. I'll, I'll pull this apart. Other religious claims. How is Christianity different from uh, other religious claims? Well, the answer is it really isn't because all of them are pointing to the same thing. You've heard this. You've heard this in popular culture. Aren't they all saying the same thing? Yes, says the theo liberal theology. Liberal theology says they are in its early manifestations in the 19th century. Uh, Christianity is an expression of a universal truth. And what our goal then, what the goal of the Christian is and the goal of the church is, is to find the utility, the practical application of these truths. 
That's what we're really gathering to figure out is how to be ethical. Okay, so the redemptive and miraculous are in our starting point. It's aren't we all kind of saying the same thing? We want to be good. You see, that's another implication in authority for theology. I mentioned this one a moment ago. The subjective and experiential slowly replace the objective and historical as a standard for theological reasoning. The interior, the subjective, not the facts. This was Machen's big beef at Princeton. Christianity is a religion of facts, said Machen. These things happen. They are attested to, both in history and by God himself through the Spirit. He sustains us in these facts. The liberal religion that he was trying to fight said, no, there is no objective content. It's a religion of feeling. Theological reasoning begins with the subjective and the experiential. And, and two more. The ethical and moral teachings of Christianity were emphasized at the expense of the miraculous and the historical. What is it we can pull out of Christianity that just teaches us to be better without getting bogged down and whether or not science can prove this or not. It's an end around. It's a jet sweep, right? It's, it's, it's an attempt to move the ball and say, we're not going to come straight at this. Let's go around this and simply say, you're right. We can't subject this to study of history and facts. This is about feeling, and it's about uh, the ethical or moral content we can call from it. Therefore, it's not a question of miracles anymore or history. And finally, and this is where I want to pick up next session in two weeks, freedom and authority are put at odds with each other. Freedom and authority are put at odds. Historically, Christianity has held that our freedom and God's authority <coughs> are a unit. After the turn in theological liberalism, they're pulled apart. So the way we understand human freedom can no longer be tied to an objective, authoritative word or fact. That is the dilemma. And that is what I want to try to address in the next session how are those brought back together, if they can be? Any questions or thoughts or comments? A couple minutes, one minute, two minutes? Does it make sense, I guess, uh, as, we, as our coffee w f wears off on Sunday morning? <laughs> Thank you. Does it make sense so far? Any clarifications? Jay. Matt? Yeah, yeah, Craig? Freedom and authority. Yeah. So when Jesus says, "You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free," is that related? Yes. To that? Yes. No. Right. And that's where we want to go next. Is how do we how do we dig this out of the Bible? And, and what does the Bible say about freedom? Away from that. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm kind of piggyback on that. It's not uncommon. It's Tim Keller says it a lot. It tries to draw this. People try to draw this distinction between Christian. Uh, 
orthodox or kind of conservative theology and liberal theology based upon a view of grace or a view of God's holiness. It, it seems to me that you're suggesting that that's really not the argument. The real argument is one of authority. Yes, that is exactly what I'm trying. And I'm wrestling with it myself. I mean, I, 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 I'm always, <laughs> I'm wrestling with this as a, as a 21st century dad, husband, citizen like you are. I mean, I know what I believe and I, and I lean on it. But culturally, I don't live in an environment that accepts those terms. I live in an environment that gives me choices. And those choices are what we call freedom. I didn't get to it today, but I'm going to get to it next week. I, uh, the, there's a great novel by Fyodor Dostoevsky, um, and um, it's the Brothers Karamazov. And in that, he he has a scene with the Grand Inquisitor, and we're going to talk about this next time because uh, to set it up in terms of fiction, it, it basically this question he raises this question: the burden of freedom, the burden of it. Freedom is supposed to be liberating, and yet we're the most unfree people emotionally and spiritually uh, maybe in the history of the world. Okay, I'll see you next two weeks. uh, Oh, but Jesus is Lord. i got to end it on something positive. I mean, we're okay. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.